My name is Tema Kaplan. I was the second uh, director of the Barnard Center for Research on Women. It's really wonderful to be back here, especially in this beautiful oval room, which uh, never existed in my, my time. And we're really lucky today to have four activist intellectuals, real scholars and feminists, whose uh, work on uh, transnational uh, women's movements is really part of their lives as well as part of their studies, as, uh, as this work is part of your lives as, as well as your studies if you uh, study them. Um, I'm going to introduce all four uh, uh, people at once, and then uh, we'll, they'll make uh, short presentations. And we do want to have as much in, uh, ex ex exchange with all of you as possible. And many of you belong to different uh, local and international and locally international organizations. And we're going to try to explore and maybe even push forward some ideas about organizing, about what's successful, what isn't successful, what's working, what isn't working, what are our disappointments, what are our achievements. So I'll begin with Jimena uh, Garcia Bustamante, who's a PhD student uh, in political science at the Graduate Center at CUNY and got her master's degree in political science at uh, the New School. And uh, she's a, 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 uh, she, she recently um, helped organize a major international conference on femicide in Central America, one of the, le one of the outrages of our time. In Mexico, which is her home country, she coordinated a pioneer gender awareness program for marginalized youth and uh, was one of the founders of the Youth Network on Sexual and Reproductive Rights. And she's frequently written for feminist literary and uh, uh, magazines and newspapers. And she's presently investigating counterinsurgency politics in Latin America. Our second speaker is uh, Ari uh, Rotramel, uh, who is um, a full-fledged PhD as of this August. So, <laughs> um, and Ari is uh, uh, basically has worked both in uh, uh, organizations, um, some of which she's uh, studied and and studied them. Her dissertation uh, was it, uh, in Women and Gender Studies at Rutgers University. Um, and uh, her, her research explores contemporary women-led community organizing efforts around a housing, environment, domestic workers. Um, but these are also organizations, though local, or also are involved with international efforts to uh, transcend the locality and see what's common among uh, uh, people of the world and women of the world. Anai Russo is, uh, has done really innovative work uh, mapping uh, the development of queer space in Mexico City. She's a PhD candidate in women and gender studies at Rutgers University, and her research currently focuses on gender and sexuality, gender and sexuality, nationalism, and queer theory in Latin America and abroad. And she's an extraordinarily courageous person in terms of what she's willing to study and what she's willing to see in what she studies. Um, and last, but certainly not least, is Sasha Tanner, who is the Associate Director of Leadership Programs and Research at the Institute for Women's Leadership at Rutgers University. Sasha is a, a PhD 
candidate in global affairs um, at the Division of Global Affairs uh, at Rutgers Newark, where she completed her master's degree uh, in, uh, in global affairs. Uh, I'm sorry, in, um, in her master of science degree in global affairs. And her work examines the gender nature of space and uh, age differences in international conferences and makes a unique contribution to uh, formulating strategy and for consolidating gains made through international organizations and conferences. Many of you have a lot to add to all of these. Many of you have been in the same places as all of us. And so we really want your feedback, your innovations, your interventions. And uh, we're going to begin with presentations by uh, the speakers. So, Jimena, first. The title of my presentation is uh, Remapping Latin American Feminisms Beyond Institutionalization and Autonomy. And as Tema just mentioned, I am from Mexico. And for several years now, I have taken part in what has been called the Mexican feminist movement, and broadly speaking, uh, in the Latin American feminist movement. This experience has fueled in me a particular interest on feminism as a collective enterprise, in other words, as a political project. Um, I assume that many people in the audience might not be particularly familiar with the practices, uh, debates, and contests that have characterized feminism in Latin America. So my purpose today is, first and foremost, to give you an overview of uh, the map and the categories used in feminist politics in Latin America and the way in which internal and external antagonisms are thought. Uh, second, to point out some of the limits of this mapping. And third, to open the discussion on how these categories and frameworks could be reinvented. Um, of course, feminism in each of the countries of Latin America has had different trajectories. Despite the difference between them, there has been for a long time a discourse about the existence of a Latin American feminist movement, which has aimed to articulate a regional feminist politics. This Latin American feminist movement has come into being through different spaces, most saliently through the Encuentros Feministas Latinoamericanos y del Caribe, held every three years since 1988. These Encuentros are basically uh, regional meetings where uh, feminists from all over Latin America come together um, in a different location each time and uh, debate uh, about the, I mean, the challenges of Latin American feminism and share experiences. Um, Latin American feminists have paid particular attention to the need to build a political vocabulary of their own in order to assess the particular history of the region and the challenges that feminism as a political force has to face. Although categories such as equality, feminism versus difference feminism have been used in different moments to demarcate political, uh, political differences, they have always remained ill-suited to account for the history and antagonisms as they are experienced in Latin America feminist politics. The main discourse that, it use, that is used today to define, on the one hand, uh, the process of economic and political change that Latin America has experienced in the last years and its consequences for social movements, and on the other, to draw political boundaries within feminist politics, is that of institutionalization versus autonomy. In this presentation, I will give some glimpses of the history of this grid and the kind of political space it assumes. Through examples drawn from the last Encuentro Feminista held in Mexico City in 2009, 
I will argue that although this grid has helped to identify and define some of the perils that Latin American feminism faces today, it has limited the possibilities of feminists to understand these perils and to imagine viable strategies for collective action. Um, Latin American feminism has a long history, uh, but I would like to focus on what happened from the 70s onwards. In those years, contemporary feminism in Latin America as such begins to take form. Many of the women uh, that joined the feminist movement uh, in the 70s were already militants in, older, in other leftist political organizations, which gave rise to the notion of double militancy. There were several issues associated to this double militancy, since some understood it as a way for women to keep trying to be accepted as equals uh, in organizations led by men, even though these organizations did not pay attention to the specific needs of women. Within traditional left organizations, organizations such as political parties or labor unions, feminism was frequently seen as a bourgeois ideology aimed to create divisions and to undermine unity, the unity of the organization. The principle of autonomy, which already had a history in Latin America, linked, for example, to anarchist thought, began to be used by feminist women to think on a political project with its own principles and concerns, which must not which was not be subservient to the priorities nor the hierarchies found on androcentric left organizations. Under the principle of autonomy, women began to organize in small groups. In this moment, however, autonomy was not defined in contraposition to any other principle or process within feminism. Um, what happens in the 80s and 90s? It is well known that several countries in Latin America experienced economics, uh, economic crisis and reforms, uh, structural adjustments, and the so-called uh, transitions to democracy. The Soviet Union broke down, as we know, and international organizations became increasingly powerful in an unipolar world. Francesca Gargallo, who understands herself as an autonomous feminist, points out that in those years, the idea of the feminization of poverty uh, became widespread. Uh, while working-class women begin, uh, or began to organize on, um, in women's organizations that were not necessarily understood as uh, feminists, small groups of women uh, got uh, high salaries uh, in different um, economic areas, and mostly middle-class women began to gain access to relevant post posts in the government and in political parties. For those who call themselves autonomous feminists, during these years, the process of institutionalization began. They point out how there was a steady increase on the projects directed to women founded by international organizations, uh, mainly after the 1975 conference on women uh, held in Mexico. This tendency began in the late 70s, but peaked during the 90s, according to uh, this discourse. Governments began to be required to conduct policies first oriented specifically to women and further on oriented to pursue gender equality. For several autonomous feminists, the concept of gender itself played a very pernicious role in this process since uh, it substituted the centrality of women and their sexual difference for a framework in which women were understood through their relation with men. For them, this entailed diverting attention uh, from women's sexuality and to their particular social experience as embodied beings, obliterating, therefore, the specific knowledges that women as a collective have cultivated through the ages. According to this critique, the concept of gender was, since its inception, inscribed in the equality logic. Um, 
according to Argallo, for example, the concept of gender only points out what is considered proper for men and women, but is not a means to discover and fulfill the lifestyle of the political subject called women. Another critique has been that gender is a concept that has been coined abroad, mostly within the Anglo-American academia, and that there is no proper translation to Spanish. Autonomous feminists, for instance, pointed out how género, as we translate the term gender, is a misguiding translation, since in Spanish, uh, género is a taxonomical category. Um, in the sixth Encuentro Feminista held in El Salvador in 1993, a group of feminists stated for the first time that a major division existed within feminism um, in Latin America and characterized I characterize this division in terms of the opposition between autonomy and institutionalization. This group of critics, which understood themselves as autonomous, expressed their inconformity with the path feminism was taking. They pointed out the dominance of the logic of equality, according to which progress should be measured, for instance, um, according to how many women managed to get high positions within governments or political parties. They perceived the dominant tendency within feminism uh, within feminist politics as one that did not uh, dare to question electoral democracy uh, nor to stand against the economic system of exploitation they identified as capitalism. All of these were uh, categorized as instances of the permanence of patriarchy and hence a crucial arena for feminist political action neglected by institutionalization. So all these processes were understood uh, by so-called um, autonomous feminists as, uh, like, uh, as being a result of uh, uh, patriarchy. Um, they also criticize who they call institutionalized feminists for accepting jobs in international organizations that perpetuated the economic and geopolitical subjection of Latin America. They denounce uh, the use of the concept of gender, not only for invisibilizing women and their needs, but also for proving useful as an instrument to incorporate feminism to policy. From then onwards, uh, this has been the main discourse used to speak about antagonisms within Latin American uh, feminist politics, and also to think about broader social and political changes in the region. As you might have noticed, uh, this discourse has been mainly furnished by those that consider themselves autonomous feminists. The label institutional is not something that uh, women usually, a, woman, a woman usually chooses for herself, but it's rather an external and usually derogatory epithet. There are many women that think that uh, feminist politics uh, should be oriented at producing changes in legislation and understand their politics as a quest for rights. Thus, they think about the state and international funding agencies and main interlocutors and sometimes allies. For autonomous feminists, they should be understood as institutionalized feminists. They, however, don't have a cohesive way of understanding themselves. Um, the feminists uh, labeled as institutional sometimes rely also on the autonomy institutionalization divide when it's politically useful for them, uh, for example, when they need to find a scapegoat in a conflict or to identify a force of disorder. Uh, so. Uh, Sometimes they target uh, this chaos coming from autonomous feminism. 
In this sense, I believe that we should ask to what extent is this framework, which dates uh, from the early 90s, useful to think about feminist politics today? It seems that although the framework is able to identify many of the challenges that feminism faces in Latin America, it does not offer a way to ask them, address them sorry, properly and therefore to imagine viable strategies for collective action. I would like to give some examples of what happened in the 11 um, Encuentro and the way in which this was read through the autonomy versus institutionalization discourse. Um, the first uh, uh, critique that autonomous feminists posed to this Encuentro is um, that it was not democratic. And which were the... Uh, the, the things that they targeted uh, with this critique. First of all, uh, the issue that the, this encuentro was the most expensive in the history of all the encuentros since 1981. Um, it seems that it costed uh, $1 million. And for um, autonomous feminists, this was kind of obscene, uh, given the fact that, I mean, uh, there are, the region is uh, quite in, impoverished. Um, secondly, um, this money, of course, came from international organizations. Uh, and despite that the budget uh, was really, uh, really good, there was a cost of admission, and that was $150. So um, that, uh, according to autonomous feminists, it's, it was a lot of money. Indeed, it was a lot of money. And you had to, to pay with credit card and register online. So autonomous feminists pointed out that uh, many women don't have access to, uh, uh, to the net and that many of them don't have a credit card to pay. Uh, also, young women had problems to... to... Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> hmm. So this requires kind of a summary. You can just talk it if you want. Just okay. explain it to people. So uh, this critique of, of uh, democracy, um, the problem with this critique is that it assumes that uh, any encuentro has been whatever a space that could be understood as democratic. Uh, but this has not, fit, has not been the fact indeed. Um, it, it is true that the cost excluded a lot of people, but... Uh, the ones that were excluded were not the ones that uh, fem autonomous feminists imagined that were excluded. Like they were talking about rural women or housewives or um, women from uh, popular movements. And, and the thing is that uh, it has been rare that these women participate in encuentros to begin with. So um, the gesture, um, I, be I believe that it's pertinent to ask to what extent uh, this exclusion is not constitutive of the encuentros and even of the gesture of differentiation from institutionalism that gave meaning to autonomy as a self-ascribed identity. Um, uh, I will go fast. Another critique uh, has to do with the exclusion um, uh, of the interests and priorities of the movement in favor of the agenda imposed by international organizations. And this is also uh, a problem because it assumes that there is a uh, a unity in a movement that it's understood as divided in the first place. Um, so this critique does, doesn't recognize that the process of creating an agenda is in itself a political project, right? Because there were all these claims that oh, um, the international organizations are imposing the agenda and we should uh, deal with our own agenda, but what was that? Like, our agenda was not, like, clear. Um, another critique was uh, the reliance on organizational representation versus individual participation. And this is problematic because, um, I mean, given the, the cost and the size that encuentros have 
for example, uh, in the last encuentro, there were like 2,500 women. It's very difficult to organize them, I mean, and, and to have money to fund them without organizations. And uh, this kind of relates also to the aversion of autonomous feminism to mass politics. Um, so uh, I will jump, uh, like, skip this... Uh, uh, Critics. So I guess that one of the main issues exposed in the encuentro was the problematic character of the concept of us, right? Uh, autonomous feminists are uh, the ones that have pointed out a division within feminism, but they are reluctant to speak about feminism in plural. Um, they say that feminism should be one um, and that there are essential principles of feminism. In a way, for autonomous feminists, institutional feminists are not real feminists, even if they think that they sometimes were before they were co-opted. So um, the problem of, of this frame is that um, it uh, makes it very difficult to establish strategies and alliances. alliances sorry. Um, and I wonder if it wouldn't be better to, uh, to understand that there are no authentic credentials necessary to call yourself feminist and that it would be more productive to seriously think who are calling themselves feminists nowadays and what kind of politics they exercise. Otherwise, I mean, you just limit yourself to uh, denouncing the others and saying they are not uh, true feminists. And all, another problem of the, this idea of us is that it assumes that uh, once upon a time there was this mythical past in which feminism was <laughs> united, right? And, uh, okay, let's imagine that this was like that at some point. Um, but uh, autonomous feminists are incapable of dealing with the fact that feminism today, not only in Latin America, but also in other parts of the world, does not necessarily have to oppose the dominant economic system and that it can align with different political forces. Perhaps you can have non-leftist non feminists, and more so, you can have feminist politics that cannot be fully addressed within the divide right-left. How do you deal, for example, with feminists working within, for example, the World Bank or the IMF? Is it enough to call them technicians or not uh, real feminists? I mean, um, so this discourse cannot deal with these things. And another very important point here is that this framework doesn't allow to, to think in the transformations that feminism has uh, experienced in the last years because autonomous feminists say that NGOs, uh, uh, states, and uh, international organizations are... Uh, agents of the same process, and uh, that uh, militancy is not there. However, they work in many of these agencies. I mean, what they say, my militancy is not there. You know, I have to work in an NGO and sell my labor force, but my militancy is somewhere else. The question will be where, right? I mean, and so if this shouldn't let, let us to question uh, if we, if thinking feminism as a movement is still useful today as a category. Um, yeah, that's it, I guess. Great. Thank you. <laughs> Everybody has a great deal to say, and hopefully we can pull it all together and see what, what we need to do collectively in, in a few minutes, and everybody will have a chance to talk again. Ari? Yeah. Um, I want to thank everyone for um, coming out today. Um, I want to thank the Barnard Conference Center for Research on Women. Um, you know, congratulations on 40 years, and here's to another 40. Um, it's an honor to be on this panel with Tema. Um, you're an amazing historian. And I want to thank my co-panelists for um, joining me. So my research is based in New York City. I study um, two groups, one group's Mothers on the Move, which is based in the South Bronx and is the main focus of this talk today. Another group is called CAV, Organizing Asian Communities, which is a pan-Asian group in New York. Um, I want to start off with a quote from a Mothers on the Move member, Sarita Parker. 
Upon the closure of a South Bronx waste processing plant that they had been struggling over 10 years to have closed, it had spread um, fumes throughout the city. In that area, people would smell something that was sound, smelled like rotting flesh or garbage. This plant finally was closed after a successful campaign by Mothers on the Move, and Sarita Parker said, although we are local, we also want to be part of a broader picture. Whether it's the South Bronx, South Side of Chicago, Southeast LA, or South America, when it affects people of low economics, it's no longer just a South Bronx story. And so for my talk, I want to think about how local activists, primarily working in the South Bronx, but also um, as part of CAV, think about environmental justice work when they're doing work in New York and also when they're participating in forums that are occurring in Latin America. So um, a key point that I want to emphasize is that for most Americans, when we think about environmental justice, it's been seen as something that's fairly white. Um, but this is really contradictory um, to the history of environmental justice activism, as well as some just recent research. Um, a, a recent poll in California demonstrated that both Asian Americans and Latino voters are aware of such issues, are more concerned about environmental justice than their white counterparts. Um, and the reporting on this study, actually a lot of people found it surprising, and it was based on this assumption that whites care more about the environment, a, an idea that's predicated on the fact that most mainstream groups have historically focused on donations from whites, as well as emphasize a legislative approach to carrying out environmental justice. A more productive approach to environmentalism that I'm going to try to be bringing out today has been proposed by Laura Polito. She argues for the study of subaltern environmentalism that is embedded in material and power struggles, as well as questions of identity and quality of life. This contrasts with the wilderness-oriented or green consumers' approach, which, of course, we see like in our plastic bottles. You know, they're smaller, so they're better, so we can buy them. It's okay. Um, and so we're really thinking about an approach to environmentalism that's thinking about power, right, and the issues that people in areas such as the South Bronx face. Um, her approach also just does highlight the fact that women of color and working class women compose approximately 90% of the active membership of grassroots environmental organizations, right? So, you know, the sort of mainstream ideas about environmentalism are very different from what we see on the ground. And for the issues that I'm looking at, it should be clear why. Um, in the South Bronx, as well as nationally, blacks and Puerto Ricans experience higher rates of both asthma-related hospitalizations and deaths when compared to their white counterparts. So the statistic might be something that people are like, oh, so this is telling us about racism and health care and inequality. But when you're looking at an issue like asthma, you have to think about poor air quality in the neighborhoods people live in. Um, there's been more research conducted this year. Uh, the 2011 CDC report, the first health disparities and inequalities report that actually addressed race, um, found that not only do we have these disparities around uh, health for blacks, but also that Puerto Ricans have the highest asthma rates and mortality of any group in the country. So when I'm looking at the South Bronx and we're thinking about that, right, the South Bronx is mostly Puerto Rican and black. Um, another finding that there hasn't been enough research on and it sort of um, needs to be developed, I think, much further is that across the three federal poverty levels, the prevalence of asthma by race and ethnicity was different than when they actually look at race and ethnicity and class, right? So it's one thing to study asthma rates and look at race and ethnicity, but they found, for example, when you look at Puerto Ricans, 
when they are poor or near poor, they have 10% or 5% higher rates of asthma. And something that was also equally confounding was that whites and blacks tend to have similar rates of asthma at lower income levels. So we need to start thinking more complexly about race and class. So for me, it was one thing to look at the CDC to really think about what does asthma look like today, but the report already told us what people in the South Bronx know, that race and class matter when it comes to asthma. Within New York, Bronx County has the highest age-adjusted mortality rate due to asthma, 35.2 per million. The high asthma rates are compounded by its having one of the smallest green space to person ratios in New York City. Although the Hunts Point area of the South Bronx has approximately six miles of waterfront, it only has 200 feet of legal access to the three bodies of water that surround it. Yeah. And it has less than half an acre of parkland per thousand people, whereas the National Park Service recommends that we have six acres per thousand people. So half an acre versus six acres. Um, it's one thing to just think about those sort of just geographic issues, but also the South Bronx is home to waste transfer stations that process 25% of the city's waste, that it has a sewage plant that handles more than half of the city's sludge, and that it has more than 11,000 diesel trucks going through it every day. So when we're talking about air pollution and major contributors, you know, part of it's waste processing, but another major factor is truck traffic, right? Particularly diesel trucks. So Mothers on the Move has been doing a lot of work on this issue since the 1990s, and they've worked with groups such as Sustainable South Bronx and The Point to challenge what has been what I would call right, a disregard for the health of South Bronx residents in the name of industrialization, right? So it's important to have trucks going through for business, but there's not a lot of thinking about the consequences for local residents. Um, over the period from the 90s to today, the Department of Transportation has started improving the way it deals with traffic planning in the area, and the New York Organic Fertilizer Company's plant has been closed. So you've had a little bit of change that's been positive, but there's still much that needs to be done. So moving to the global stage, you know, a question that I always ask when I was doing my research is, how do people in the South Bronx keep their heads up, right? How do you think about pursuing this kind of work when you can feel so isolated? And part of what I think is really how that is made possible is by participating in an international justice movement, right? So finding people across the Americas who share an experience and issues with you. That kind of idea reflects what Valerie Calland has observed about black women's activism, where she says they link their local struggles for environmental justice with global environmental injustice through participation in various national and international summits and meetings. In April 2010, Sarita Parker of Mothers on the Move and Nova Strachan both traveled to Bolivia to participate in the Cochabamba Expo Conciencia, a meeting that gathered over 35,000 people from 140 countries. So we see them moving from a local activism to something that really is about bringing tons of people together. As an organizer, Strachan observed that such experiences help her understand what is, that's what's going on in the South Bronx is something that's part of a larger global struggle by people of color as they fight for survival. Out of this meeting came the Cochabamba Accord that was then brought by Bolivian President Evo Morales to the 2010 Cancun meeting of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. His bringing of this proposal obviously cemented his relationship as an international politician to grassroots organizations, but also provided an opportunity to think about 
the way that both politicians and activists are concerned about market-oriented solutions to environmental change. So in 2011, protesters reported back on this Cancun meeting. They were frustrated with a general lack of support or even openness of the meeting. So people had traveled to Cancun, and they weren't actually able to even attend the forum. Right? They were able to be outside, camped out, but there was a lack of access. So it raises questions about how do attending these meetings or gathering right, in Cancun, what does that do for activists? For housing organizer Esther Wang from CAV, she said that part of what was important for her was actually meeting people through Via Campesina, who had brought people in caravans all through Mexico to Cancun. So the actual process of travel and interacting amongst activists for her was positive. But she was frustrated by the failure of officials to even engage them. And she was also frustrated by the fact that mainstream organizations haven't come out against a major concern of theirs, which is that the UN's reducing emissions from deforestation and forest segregation policy. Right? So this is the red policy, which I don't know how many of you have heard of. You can give me a sense, not really. So this red policy is an idea where we'll have sort of um, traits. The idea that a corporation can log in a certain area and as long as it has a sort of equal um, swap of land, it'll be fine. So I cut down trees in one area. As long as I plant trees someplace else, it's okay. So this is a policy that people have concerns about, not only because that sounds like that's not actually improving the environment, but also it threatens um, indigenous folks' rights. Right? So the idea that I can cut down trees in New York State, but I'm going to protect forests in Mexico. When we think about how policies around conservation have often worked, indigenous rights of people who are seen as living in a forest, right? The state can come in. This is now a preserve. You guys need to leave, right? So for activists in New York City, they're thinking about how to issues about red, which they're concerned about for their own benefit, right? They think about how is it also going to affect indigenous activists in other countries, right, where states might be coming in to control their land. So... The question I kind of have about these kinds these forums is how can local activists, you know, use an international movement to get inspiration, right? How can they use tactics that have come out of Latin America, like community visioning, to do their local work? But also, what are the continuing frustrations they have working within systems that do privilege, right, the appropriate representatives? I think the questions around the encuentro and access are the same questions I'm asking in terms of what the future is to sort of negotiate with, you know, global giants, right? If we want the UN support, right, we want that IMF to make change, how do local groups who don't have access, how can they work with maybe institutionalized feminists to make change, right? I think those are questions that um, need to be asked. And at least for the groups that I've looked at, they still, right, believe in an international movement and they believe in trying to participate in these forums, even if it's Cancun, and really what the, the activism they're doing isn't at the UN. It's with people that they're sharing, you know, housing with for that time. So um, thank you. Thank you very much for having us here. And um, what I'm going to present today is related to my work that is on intimacy in lesbian communities in Mexico City um, over three generations of women, so from the 1960s until um, 2010. Uh, based on ethnographic research. Um, however, the piece that I'm presenting today is uh, one of the 40 questions that I ask in the questionnaire um, 
that I um, um, that I used, like in Mexico City in 2009-2010. But um, it's also part of a growing discussion um, that is taking place uh, in lesbian communities across Latin America. So across the American continent, uh, debates on same-sex marriage, adoption, and homophobia have filled the public sphere. Uh, In 2009, Mexico City became the first place in Latin America to legalize same-sex marriage. A few months later, same-sex marriage became legal in Argentina. So how are individuals participating in queer communities across Latin America, reconfiguring their views on intimacy, so uh, love, friendship, sexuality, for example, in the midst of these changes which relate to sexual citizenship? Uh, So in this paper, I examine the case of the emergence of polyamorous lesbian Latin American collectives precisely at a moment in which a conversation on the forms of intimacy that should be legitimated are developing in the public sphere. While conversations on same-sex marriage were largely organized around the themes of reproduction in the family in situations such as the review of the constitutionality of same-sex marriage at the Supreme Court in Mexico, um, I suggest that through the strategic articulation of embodied practices, Polyamorous collectives attempt offering alternative imaginaries on love, eroticism, relationships, and overall the social organization of Latin American societies. Um, This paper is based on the incipient examination of the transnational anthology uh, entitled Desobedientes. Um, So the full translation of the title would be Disobedient Experiences and Reflections on Polyamory, Open Relationships, and Casual Sex between Latin American lesbians. Uh, edited by Mogrovejo, Pesha, Espinosa, and Robledo, and published in 2009. Uh, I also consider some insights gathered, gathered during ethnographic fieldwork in Mexico City in 2009 and 2010. So I'm going to give you a short overview of uh, Desobedientes. Um, Desobedientes is a collection of writings on lesbian experiences with polyamory, open relationships, and casual sex. The collection includes essays, poems, and short stories from women living in various Latin American countries and a Latina living in the U.S. Latin American lesbian networks have been very active in the region since the 1980s, in particular to the Latin American lesbian feminist um, encuentros. So Jimena talked to us about the Latin American feminist encuentros, but since the 80s there has also well been a lesbian feminist version of these encuentros. Uh, while the anthology resists, um, uh, while the anthology resists providing one single definition of polyamory, Espinosa Minoso suggests that, and I quote, polyamory, open relationships, free love, and casual sex have been different ways to name the multiple manners of encountering desire, loving relationships, sexuality, and eroticism between human beings, out of the social norms of monogamy. End of quote. In a similar fashion, uh, Mexican philosopher Neri Arriaga suggests that it is, um, and I quote, the practice or the possibility of establishing intimate, loving, sexual relations, in parentheses, not necessarily stable, with more than one person envisioning equity, consent, and honesty between the people involved. The editors propose that their collection questions the social normativity of obligatory monogamy. And I quote, during times where our values get confused with the ones of the happy family, dash, the one 
of capitalism and patriarchy, end of quote. As Peshaw remarks, um, monogamy is acceptable as long as it is not compulsive. Uh, the authors also question what it means. <laughs> so, yeah. okay. so the authors also question what it means to open themselves to polyamory as women in societies in which the ideals and sexuality prescribe in their most traditional expression, reproductive sexuality to women. Throughout the chapters, com compulsory coupling partners as private property and the myth of ever after are questioned. But we also read about the everyday life of an open long distance relationship, an orgy, jealousy, complicity, and long, long nights of no sleep with interminable discussions on how to keep a relationship. Mm -hmm. um, the editors situate, in fact, the point of departure of the anthology in a moment of crisis, after two of the editors confessed to their respective partners that they had sustained a relationship with another person. Um, in Desobedientes, so I'm going to now situate a little bit more um, Desobedientes with some discussions that are um, taking place uh, across um, the Americas. So in Desobedientes, philosopher Neri Arriaga tells us that in situations where love is manifested through legislative channels, there is no place for spontaneity or shared agreements and pleasures. So that, that was a quote. Um, it is not surprising that Desobedientes emerges at a moment where the representation of same-sex sexuality in the public sphere is increasingly associated with the issue of same-sex marriage in Latin American societies. As sociologist De La Dehesa points out in his study on the Brazilian and Mexican LGBT movements, it is in the late 1990s that we see an intensification of LGBT activism in the realms of legislation and policy in those countries. However, it is since approximately 2007 that most changes take place. For example, in Mexico, the Supreme Court of Justice recognized same-sex marriage as constitutionally valid in 2010, as approved by the local legislator of, the Mexica, of Mexico City. In Argentina, the Senate accepted the modifications to the civil code which permits marriage between all genders. Colombia, Uruguay, and Paraguay have reinforced the debate around the possibility of having a law similar to Argentina's in their respective countries. And Bolivia and Ecuador incorporated in their constitutions protections in respect to discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. And there are more examples than that. Those are only a few examples. Um, the Sobenientes must also be situated along the divide between the so-called autonomous and institutional feminists in Latin America, which Jimena just uh, exposed. Um, autonomous feminists have been skeptical of the possibilities of transforming societies through the strategies of liberal feminism. Similarly, the involvement of the state in the legitimization of love and companionship through a legal contract that prescribes specific rules is regarded as highly suspicious. Um, in the next section, I delineate um, how polyamory is presented in Desobedientes as a resistant strategy to compulsory monogamy, but overall as a productive strategy that offers alternative imaginaries on the social organization of affective relationships. So at the time of fieldwork in Mexico City in 2009-2010, um, discussions on polyamory were growing in lesbian spaces. In order to raise consciousness on this alternative mode of relating, activists put together collections of writings such as Desobedientes. Um, organizations such as Colectivo Poliamor presented workshops at lesbian and queer organizations, and some of my friends initiated discussions online through mediums such as Facebook. 
these strategies promoted reflection on an issue that had been at times demonized in lesbian communities, particularly in a context where discourses on double morality classifying women as good or bad according to their sexual behavior is present and even growing through the increasing influence of the right. So at a time where same-sex committed relations were being legitimated by the state, polyamorous collectives brought to our attention the possibility of organizing intimacy differently. While some of the strategies were discursive, such as workshops, books, etc., the heart of the strategy resides in these alternatives embodied tactics slash practices that are not always fully legitimated in the lesbian world or in larger society. It rests on a series of disorganized actions that signal a fissure in the normative tissue. Actions are in a large part unplanned as disobediences um, plans, as, as disobediences also emerges as a reflection on the apparent spontaneity and disorganization of desire. As Espinosa y Munoz tells us, no human, I quote, no human community has been able to completely get rid of the ghost of desire which resists regulation, end of quote. Desobedientes indirectly presents the strategy as an open question that, no single ans- that has no single answer. In the words of Neri Arriaga, and I quote, there only exist probabilities and alternatives, end of quote. Precisely the strategy attacks the single root of compulsive coupling and reproduction while suggesting that there are as many answers as people on how to live effective relationships. The strategy is live as a long-lasting experiment. Uh, for the most part, disobedientes does not promise that polyamory will lead to a utopic world, which I find interesting. Um, nor does it suggest that the execution of its tactics is without difficulties. Uh, it's a strategy of hope and disenchantment, and disenchantment at once. Um, from the very beginning, in the introduction, Espinosa Minoso states, and I quote, It is true that the path is not full of roses. The path of open relationships is certainly not the easiest one, but the challenge is there for all of us. After all, the path of lesbianism has not been easy, and yet I have found satisfaction in it. End of quote. So in brief, um, polyamorous strategies might be characterized as practices lived in the flesh that attempt to attain undefined probabilities and alternatives that do not necessarily promise a better world, an experiment in the, ma- in the making that begs no answers. In this paper... I have situated the emergence of voices on lesbian polyamory in tension with the growing discussions on sexual citizenship and more specifically same-sex marriage across the Americas. I have suggested that through the strategic articulation of embodied practices, polyamorous collectives attempt offering alternative modes of relating. Sasha? Uh, I also want to thank Tema for moderating our panel and uh, to my fellow panelists for inviting me. Um, And before I start, I just want to kind of preface by saying that I've used this opportunity as this writing process to entertain some really broad thoughts that are interesting to me as I move forward in my graduate work. My paper addresses strategies and tactics of women's activist networks organizing in transnational spaces. I'm interested in looking at contemporary feminist arenas where local and global processes, perspectives, and institutions mingle, and learning more about internetworked 
justice movements concentrating on improving the daily lives of women. It is my hope that I could further develop a research project that explores transnational feminist organizing as a way to think about global politics in the 21st century, who shapes it, where it takes place, and what tools and strategies are being utilized. In my opinion, bringing women's activism to the center of this kind of conversation is not only important, but critical if we would like to see a more comprehensive approach to thinking about politics, society, culture, and the work of nonviolent global social justice movements. At this particular juncture, about a decade into the 21st century, the striking effects of the expansion of market capitalism, even for those promoters of it, uh, is hard to ignore. The devastating results of imbalances created by an unregulated market and the neoliberal ideological framework that backs it has exploited workers, brought food scarcity and the inability to secure local and pollution-free water and heat sources, land that has been scoured, grabbed, and or destroyed, and a hyper-reliance on militant solutions have all disproportionately, egregiously, and violently landed on the backs of women and marginalized social groups. In a period of increased globalization processes, whereby advances in technology and transportation have brought our world closer and into a post-international system where sovereign states are no longer the sole or even primary actors in politics, I feel the traditional disciplines must acknowledge, validate, and examine all agents of political change. A little over 20 years ago, a crumbling wall in Berlin signified the end of the Cold War and a proliferation of non-state actors ensued. In this recent history, dominant social science scholarship has for the most part failed to adequately address the relationship of social justice movements and the organizing entities that mobilize them with the political spheres they impact. In fact, the majority of the dominant literature does little to acknowledge women's activism and movements in the shaping and design of agendas that offer alternatives to our current dominant globalization processes that seek to change the current trajectory of what is referred to as the race to the bottom, where the most marginalized individuals are often the most exploited in the interest of profit gain. It is in this historical moment that I turn to the arenas in which transnational women's activists uh, convene. In exploring sites where contemporary feminist activist networks coordinate, it is my hope to build on their brief examples illustrated here and to assert the argument that there is a usefulness of putting their work into focus. For this brief talk, I've chosen three conference sites and one theme or point from each that I have found helpful in my own understanding of what may offer in terms of what they may offer in terms of strategies and tactics. My first example is the Association for Women's Rights and Development, or AWID, which is a transnational feminist membership organization committed to achieving gender equality, sustainable development, and women's human rights. AWID constituents are made up of researchers, students, activists, policymakers, and others seeking to, quote, strengthen the voice, impact, and influence of women's rights advocates, organizations, and movements to effectively advance the rights of women. With this aim, AWID has emphasized intergenerational movement building as a strategy that has led to the creation of different platforms for the exchange and support of young women. 
Their conferences take place every three to four years and brings women's rights leaders and activists together to strategize and network across themes that address women's rights. The 12th Forum, coming up this April of 2012, will focus on how economic power can be used to advance women's rights and justice, and is estimating 2,000 participants from around the world. A young feminist activist uh, activism program that was informally evolving since 2001 to increase women's participation was institutionalized in 2007 in preparation for the South Africa Forum taking place the following year. I believe AWID offers a model of activities and initiatives that help integrate and cultivate a young generation, a young generation of activists into uh, the broader social movement work, social movements work. They have combined one of their strategic areas of interest, building feminist movements and organizations with the concept of intergenerational relationship building to formulate new ideas and resources for reaching out and drawing in young women into the forum and in their own work. The AWID Forum has also provided a space for self-reflexiveness of organizations and individuals who want to deepen their relationship with women's movements. One Latin American attendee stated what was especially inspiring to her about the forum was to see that young women are integrating themselves into women's movements. She said, we had discussions with them, and although we did not always reach an agreement, we felt that they are willing to listen to us. By getting to know young feminists at the forum, it occurred to us that we can also try to establish links with the new generations of the women's movements in Argentina in order to open a discussion and build something together on the basis of difference. The forum made us see that there is a revitalization taking place within feminism. So the idea of making concrete ways to achieve sustainability in collective action and organizing over time. Like AWID, the Women's World's Congress convenes every three years and is a feminist space meant to bring activists, academics, and policymakers together to connect and converse about women's rights and equality. Congress participants, engage, Congress participants engaged in dialogue under the broad theme of inclusions, exclusions, and seclusions living in a globalized world in Ottawa, Canada this past July. The Congress brought approximately 1,500 people from over 90 countries to engage in meaningful discussions across diverse networks. Like AWID, the Women's World's Congresses have also made a concerted effort to integrate young women and their voices into the forum and to be mindfully inclusive of youth and young feminist work. However, the strategy that I would like to touch upon so briefly here is the one I found most successful and engaging as a participant in the Congress, and that was how their geographical context was utilized to draw on the wisdom, activism, and leadership of Aboriginal women. The notion that it is difficult to separate an experience from the spatial location in which it has transpired for me strongly resonates with this example. The Congress states in their principles and objectives, if the forum aspires to be a powerful celebration of voices and diversity, the perspectives, experiences, knowledge, culture, and territory of indigenous people must be recognized and honored at all levels. To this end, they created an Aboriginal Women's Leadership Circle, which was a volunteer advisory body comprised of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis women. The circle contributed to the development of a comprehensive selection of both thematic and artistic Aboriginal programming. The Congress wanted to ensure that participants had many opportunities to connect with indigenous women from Canada and around the world, and has taken extensive efforts to make certain, quote, their wisdom and approaches are meaningful and not a tokenistic part of this gathering. I think they were successful 
in achieving what they consider to be a primary objective in the Congress, that participants, quote, take away a deeper understanding of Aboriginal and Indigenous women, as well as a recognition of their immense knowledge and leadership as inspiration for a better world. My third and final example is the Feminist Dialogues, an autonomous global site of feminist activists carved out by women's networks primarily from the South alongside the World Social Forum, an annual meeting of multitudes of civil society organizations, first held in Porto Alegre, Brazil, initiated by the Brazilian Workers' Party and a French organization in 2001 as a counter-meeting to the World Economic Forum taking place in Davos, Switzerland at the same time. The feminist dialogues, unlike my other two examples, have had a smaller number of participants, a couple of hundred, but attached to a forum that has tens of thousands of individuals organizing against dominant market globalism. Although the forum has driven for the creation of a diverse plural space that encourages an exchange of ideas and agendas to counter neoliberalism, the demographics were initially and predominantly male and white. The sidelining of feminist voices in the conference led to small impromptu meetings of women's networks after the first forum, which eventually evolved into the creation of an altar space coined the Feminist Dialogues, a site for transnational feminist activist networks to organize the days preceding the larger forum in an effort to strengthen the feminist voices and agendas as they interact with each other with the other social movements present at the forum. As the dialogues evolved, women's groups were expanding the use of the space not only to prepare and strengthen the articulation of strategies to include women's rights in the larger forum, but to build collaboration and solidarity between diverse women's movements and perspectives. So mo movement building within and across. The creation of the feminist dialogues can be seen as an innovative strategy to carve out a space for women's voices and organizing with existing dominant structures and as a site for producing knowledge on gendered social justice activities. My concluding remarks lie with the foundational assertion that global activist networks are indeed important actors in global politics and that feminist global social movements who address imbalances in patriarchal and capitalist contexts should be identified as potential models, partners, and significant phenomena worthy of research. Analyses that take into account the multiple identities of feminist activist networks and their interaction with one another on various micro-macro levels will help us move further away from the dominant viewpoints that see social, economic, political, and cultural trends as disparate processes. I believe that bringing a gendered awareness to social movement research is a way to evolve theories and knowledge about global politics. Contemporary global nonviolent social justice movements and their theories, theorists, from and across trans, from across and trans disciplines could benefit from the rich history and experiences of women's groups and movements. For me, it is the transnational feminist formations whose complex web of voices and loosely coordinated activism moving through and around very physical but also conceptual borders that can provide us with vital knowledge of global social inequities and their redress. Thank you all. These were uh, wonderful papers showing the diversity of women's organizations and feminist organizations and, uh, uh, all over the world. And they raise a lot of questions. In, in her presentation uh, to the conference, uh, inviting uh, or uh, trying to uh, present a paper here, um, 
uh, uh, Jimena uh, raised the question about uh, whether the idea of social movement was still a useful way to talk about feminist politics in Latin America today. And what we've seen are the, the richness of women's movements. Uh, and then some of the problems of talking both about organization and about definition and considering uh, considerations of how to talk about these movements and then how to enrich them in either way. Ari's talked about um, uh, uh, women on the move and uh, and uh, the mothers on the move and uh, and that raises all of the questions that that many of us have asked about the women who do for but don't have done for them and w whether in fact. Uh, there are possibilities of women bringing their own needs into uh, movements in which they're fighting for social justice. That is, can you simultaneously talk about what you need in a movement? Uh, and I raise a question that's come up in, in my own work. There's a lot of battering in social movements of women. That is, when women turn from being... Uh, everyday citizens to uh, to uh, leaders of uh, uh, and activists in social movements. There's a lot of battering. There's still a lot of taboo about the violence against women within wi movements of women who are organizing. Uh, Anai raises the question about you know uh, the kind of risk taking that that many of us associate with uh, the early feminist movement of daring to talk about anything or uh, act on anything. And a, a friend of mine and I have talked about how difficult it, it is or was to talk about promiscuity, that, there's a, that we, we want gay marriage, but we also want gay and straight promiscuity. Some of us still do. Um, uh, 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 and so the question about domesticity and how it permeates certain kind of movements to the extent that you can't really talk about sexuality within, to be taken seriously within uh, political social movements is still with us. And I think some of the, uh, that uh, some of the papers raise questions about how we can do that. Um, Jimena raises uh, an issue uh, in, in her uh, written paper about institutionalization and about uh, questions ab about how do we um, uh, uh, move from, uh, how do we talk about the local and the international simultaneously and whether these international movements, which we all need and which many of us have participated in, have, uh, have a benefit back home. That is, do we learn from each other? Can we in integrate certain things? And Ari, I think, without putting words in her mouth and I'll let her speak for herself, would say yes. I mean, and that looking at the movements of, uh, 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 you know, that, that she studied and the way that they can integrate inter international movements. Two other examples of that are, of course, that the water wars in Cochabamba were largely women's wars, although that, that many women participated, many women, but the leaders were once again sort of known as uh, were, were uh, the spokesmen were men. But the vast mass base of those movements were women, and they were international movements in which women and women's organizations internationally supported uh, people in Cochabamba who had been forced to, uh, to uh, borrow money from a subsidiary of Halberton and uh, to, uh, to repair the water system in, in Cochabamba, Bolivia. And 
And this raises a question about, is there international mobilization? At the Beijing Women's Conference, one of the environmental uh, workshops of which I was a part, talked about how you could target certain countries, that there were certain countries where you could sue them in some country, mobilize against them in another country, uh, boycott them in, uh, internationally, and could you, could you organize, it was Motorola, but uh, we're not using terms, that when, when you target certain countries that are incredible, uh, that violate the environment, and how do you organize them in certain places where the repression is too great? Uh, can women use the, these international networks to uh, work uh, for a, a social benefit? And can we sustain these organizational networks? We have these meetings. The encuentros have been Wonderful, the women's conferences, the world conferences of women, although there's a lot of debate among the most activist women in these conferences who feel that it takes a huge amount of energy to work in the United Nations, that maybe that energy could be placed more effectively in, in uh, local organizing and in other forms of international organizing. But I think these papers taken together um, along with Sasha's notion of looking at these organizations themselves, that AWID, for example, has a generational policy and is attempting to try to work out what, what women's organizations have had a lot of trouble with, along with other organizations. How do you pass on from the older leaders to the younger leaders? How do people, how do generations move into power, and how do you shape these organizations when some of, the, some of us don't want them to be shaped in ways differently from the way we first shaped them. Uh, how do you work out these generational conflicts? How do you work out uh, this? And I think that uh, these papers all contribute to that contribution. So I'd like to, I have a lot more to say, but I'd like to open it up and have people uh, talk. Thank you all so much for your presentations. I really enjoyed them. Um, I guess I had a question for Jimena. It strikes me that in um, when we're having, or in the conversations about the uh, debate between the institucionales and the autonomas, um, that oftentimes some of that critique is actually coming out of the institucionales. Mm -hmm. So similar to the dynamic that we saw with the book, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded, where there was this very deep criticism of the NGO structure that was largely coming out of people who had worked within the NGO structure, um, that, that the critique, I, I guess I'm saying this because I went to Ecuador this summer and met with the former head of the Ministry of you know, Women's Issues, and she was basically saying how glad she was to see more autonomous movements forming. And so it made me think, well, if there's anybody more institutional than her, it's, it's hard <laughs> to think of it, right? So she had a very autonoma kind of critique that she was saying that she really supported. And so it it just kind of, that was one, I guess that's a comment that I would like to hear your thoughts on about kind of, certainly there are questions of ex economic exclusion that are very clear in the critique made by Autonomas about can poor women access these events or those kinds of things. But there also seems to be a large degree to which the critique, the, the critique of the Autonomas is to say, yes, let's work within these institutions, but we also need to work outside of them because they won't be enough. Um, and then I guess I want to say that one of the things that's never entirely clear to me is like what do we mean when we say institucionales? 
doesn't mean we're taking state funding, doesn't mean that autonomas are not parts of other political organizations that are perhaps going to guide their thinking. Um, are they parts of NGOs? Are they parts of the academy? Like, is that institutional? Or like, how do we define what an institutionalized form of feminism is? And I think that that speaks a lot to the questions of exclusion and exclusion, in inclusion and exclusion. So like, who gets to claim that title of being an autonoma um, within the kind of political field that we're in now? I okay, think that's great. It. I think that's it. Thank great you question. <laughs> okay. Um, well, let me see. Uh, indeed, this is one of the issues that I um, uh, wanted to, to bring forward, uh, but I was not able to explore uh, with much detail, that there is a problem in the notion of institutionalization because it's, uh, um, it kind of points out something that is happening, but I'm not sure to what extent we should understand it as institutionalization because you could think that institutionalization is any way of establishing norms and uh, organizational structures. So in that sense, you could think that to be able to have a regional encuentro feminista, you need some uh, sort of institutionalization, right? The question would be uh, how to understand like the different... The, the, changes that feminism has suffered in Latin America in the recent decades. And, uh, well, so-called autonomous uh, feminists have tried, uh, I mean, have drawn this map. But I was, as I was mentioning, it has, like, many, many problems. Um, and also, how do you uh, differentiate who is autonomous and who is institutional is another like very big problem because as I was mentioning, uh, feminists that understand themselves as autonomous have to work somewhere, right? And many of them work in academia or in NGOs, not in international organizations usually. I mean, um, but as I was mentioning, they understand this as something that uh, you need to do to survive, right? I mean, that you are uh, selling your working force, but that the militancy is not there. The problem is how do you think on a militancy outside of those forums? I mean, is, is it possible or, or not? Um, and how that could look like? Because it seems that the idea is groups, like small groups that... Uh, don't need to be linked to any kind of broader structure, but does that, I mean, is that possible today? And what kind of political action you can do with those uh, forms of uh, organization? Other questions, comments? Thank you. Thank you for the panel. Uh, and I, uh, a question. Um, would you please comment on the notion of sexual democracy? You were at the program, at our program in Mexico, when Eric Fassan was there, this very good friend of Judith Butler, who is talking about sex, both are talking about sexual democracy. And apparently, the, the battle and the struggle and the tension for citizenship is organized around sexuality now. You know, the big battles for citizenship are structured around desire, around polyamor, and around promiscuity, which is a word of our generation, but now it's polyamor, it's much, much, much better. <laughs> and uh, could you comment on citizenship, please, on citizenship and, and sexuality? And also another thing, what is the difference of, of sexuality and polyamor and all this risking in Mexico City 
of doing these these very dangerous and, and, and practices related to desire. What is the difference in between being polyamor in New York or being polyamor in, in the EFE, no? You, you were commenting also on that. And for Jimena, um, you, you decided, and I think it's accurate to, to pull the tension in between autonomous and uh, institutionalists. There are a lot of tensions in between feminist movements. And I, I, I would like you to comment on, on building tensions in the following way, for example, as using gender as an analytical category, or using gender as gender mainstreaming, or gender mainstreaming, I call it always mainstreaming, or, or building it around equity, you know, all these very um, uh, politically correct issues, no? There, there are women that are always inside the institution, but there are also women that are using uh, los filos críticos in a, in a very critical and radical way and are transforming things. So get, if you could move on of that autonomy and institutional, what would you say? So I'm going to comment on, on one, what you're asking, uh, Marisa, um, but also on what you commented, Tema, about um, the term polyamory emerging right now, but... Um, Many people talk about it like as a practice that was there um, kind of very common about 20, 30 years ago. Um, in fact, when I did um, interviews in Mexico City with women who participate in queer spaces, um, one of um, the people that I talked with who was in her late 50s um, told me that like, oh, you know, like um, when I was younger, like we actually... Um, had these polyamorous practices, but we didn't necessarily call it polyamory. There were like practices that were going on. So, um, which leads me to inter interrogate um, kind of why, why is it being like tagged or identified? Like when is it necessary to theorize uh, certain practices that are occurring uh, in a community? Um, so when do we go to theory um, when, do an, when do we analyze the situations that we're in? And um, that brings me to think about um, the differences, like um, what's particular about uh, this discussion that is occurring on polyamory in Latin America. Um, as I discussed, like, I think that it's, like the authors situate like the beginning of their book as a crisis that they were living in their uh, personal lives. Um, like two of the authors, um, discuss how they confess to their partner, their respective partners, that they were like in another relationship. But um, I think if we look at the larger framework, it is not surprising that such a discussion is happening today uh, when there is a shift in the ways of talking about sexual citizenship today in Latin America. So um, there were some examples, but like uh, if the most salient one and that has been mo most mediatized is the one of same-sex marriage. And many countries across Latin America have adopted um, anti-discrimination laws that include sexual orientation as well. Um, so I think the difference, um, not necessarily in the practice itself, but like in terms of the context, uh, would be like these discussions that are going on that, that have emerged and these laws that are changing uh, one country after the other since 2007. So it's something very present. And I know that it's also happening, if you think of, about the context of the U.S. here, um, but it's, it's a, um, 
As far as I know, I mean, I know that there's some writing of in, on polyamory, but um, I'm not aware like of a certain movement that has emerged like in this context, um, kind of reflecting on uh, polyamorous experiences, like specifically as uh, lesbian polyamory. Like I'm, I'm not saying there's no writing at all, but I, I don't see a movement or networks like invested in that discussion as I encountered in Latin America in 2009, 2010. So. Marisa, uh, thank you for, for the, the question. Um, um, I guess that part of the purpose of the paper was precisely uh, pointing out how this framework, Institucionales Autonomas, is unable to to grasp the complexity of uh, the political differences in Latin American feminism. And I just try to give some examples of uh, uh, why it, this, um, the framework is like fairly limited. And I guess that the issue of, of the notion of gender is, as you pointed out, a, a, a way of approaching this discussion because um, I do, you, you can see that there is a process going on, right? I mean, you can see that uh, areas of uh, gender are created in several institutions, uh, in the government and international organizations. Uh, and the problem is perhaps to think that all these manifestations are part of the same thing, right? Because the problem with autonomous feminists is that they kind of uh, say the state NGOs, international organizations, all this is the state logic expanding, right? So you have uh, gender is being instrumentalized in a way. And it's true that it's being instrumentalized, but in different ways, right? And what about academia, for example, that it's also thought as an institutional arena? I believe that gender has uh, been useful, right, as, as analytical and also as a political category. And uh, this framework is not able to kind of uh, deal with this. Or uh, about the issue of transgenders, that is something that I wanted to comment in my paper, but there was no time. Um, in the Encuentro Feminista in Mexico, there was like a, hu a huge discussion about the, the inclusion, inclusion of transgender in the encuentros, right? Because uh, autonomous feminists said that they shouldn't be included because they had been born men, right? And even though they had like a a problem with that uh, identity, um, their body was different. And um, it was kind of surprising to see this because uh, you, in, in the, in the encuentro there were like 2,500 people. And of, out, out of that 2,000, only like 10 were transgenders. And despite of that, the discussion on, of, about their presence there took like uh, all the stage, you know? I mean, we had like feminists being persecuted in Nicaragua, we had like this backlash against uh, sexual rights. Uh, we had like femicides all over the continent, and the discussion was: Should these ten people be here, right? And 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 and, and, and the problem is that what it's um, the autonomous consider themselves like the radical wing of feminism in Latin America, and they were the ones saying this. Uh, uh, these people are polluting us. And this goes, uh, and this is precisely because of uh, the problem they have with the notion of gender, right? But, I mean, the category of gender could allow you to think in a different way of organizing politics. To begin with, many of the transgenders there could be better political allies than other women that are undisputable women, right? And, and, and there was no effort to really redraw the political map and ask the transgenders, what kind of politics do you have? What is your agenda? Because that was not an issue, you know? It, that didn't matter. 
The point was their body. That, that, that was like the, the discussion. And uh, there is a quote I wanted to read um, because uh, the uh, f autonomous feminist made this like uh, statement after the encuentro, saying that um, they were not talking about a biological body and about an identity, but about a political body, right, uh, that had been uh, formed through grievances. So transgenders didn't have this political body. But here it is uh, the place where the category of gender kind of opens up things, right? Uh, and I believe that it's a, a good way to, to point out why, why uh, these political antagonisms doesn't fully grasp I mean, what is happening in Latin American feminism. I want to thank this wonderful panel. <laughs>